Ready, Dave? Hello, music fans out there in Radioland. This is Jordan Cooper and Dave Fox of Don't Let's Start a Podcast About They Might Be Giants. This is a podcast about They Might Be Giants. They Might Be Giants. This is a podcast about This is a really special episode. I've been sitting on this one for a while and I believe it's hatched. It's, it's hatched, <laughs> right, Dave? We're both yeah. doing separate jokes at the same time, but that's because we're both yeah. too funny. We can't oh. stop ourselves. Anyway, this is our full, unedited, well, it is edited, <laughs> interview with Laura Cantrell, the incredible songwriter and singer and musician who uh, you heard uh, pieces, you heard pieces of this interview in our Apollo 18 episodes. We talked to Laura the about the guitar, and then later I, I also played a bit about the uh, guitar EP cover art. That was in our B-Sides episode. Little samples, little Lord Derbs, but this is the full meal, and... Dave, why don't you set the scene of the <laughs> the night we spoke to Laura Cantrell? Well, it was a frigid day in Queens that night, my friends. Yes. And uh, in spite of that, we braved the cold and had a lovely conversation for a few hours. In a really nice garden area. In a lovely a outside garden. garden. It was kind of magical. And it was great. It, it was great. She was so accommodating and friendly and, and uh, very... You know, she was enthusiastic to tell a bunch of stories yes. about working with They Might Be Giants. She's a great talker. She's a great uh, storyteller. She worked as a, a DJ and stuff, so she's she's no stranger to talking about music in a microphone. You're going to hear us talk about meeting They Might Be Giants. You're going to hear talk about working on Apollo 18 with them. You're going to hear about the, the guitar music video shoot, which is a really fun uh, mm -hmm. section, I thought. Uh, you're going to hear about touring with them and, and singing live with them on a few times at some shows. And then uh, something that I'm extra excited about, I've long been a fan of her solo albums, and we go into like very specific songs and lyrics from her solo albums and mm -hmm. things I never knew about those songs. And if any of you don't know her stuff, I mean, there'll be clips and stuff, but you should familiarize yourself yeah, because her albums are just Dummies. really, really fun and, and the melodies are great. And and the, Robin Goldwasser from They Might Be Giants is on yes. them. And it's kind of got like this all-star lineup of people, you, names you might've heard before being a fan of They Might Be Giants. And another uh, thing I love about this is we talk about the Hello EP that she made mm -hmm. uh, that John Flansburg produced. And there's there's a lot of great stuff about all those songs. That that, that might be my favorite section. That's of the first thing, thing she ever did. That's right. The first thing she did, crazy. like in terms of her own songwriting yeah. and stuff. And we've also got a uh, crazy, like rare stuff of this bands she had before all that, which I had yeah. no idea about. Awesome. So without further delay here, here today, it's our interview with Laura Cantrell featuring Jordan and in a special guest appearance, Dave. Me. So first of all, thank you for being here. Laura Cantrell, everyone. Thanks for coming to see me in Jackson Heights and yeah. make this possible, make this conversation possible. Yeah, so. I can't believe you live, this, we live right around here. <laughs> it's just so weird. We live in Regal Park, like a little south. Queens power. We have a yeah. lot of Queens mojo happening right <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, I'd like to just start just about your origins and sure. how you got into music and I'm I think I have a special interest in songwriting especially out right. of all the things. Okay, well, I guess I'll 
just start by saying that I'm from Nashville and came from a family that were all country music fans, pretty much. And also just fans. Like my dad and mom both love different eras of music, different kinds of music. And, you know, my dad's side is from rural West Tennessee. So they were really like Grand Ole Opry listeners and kind of like if you think of a typical like family that listened to the radio and like knew all the artists on the Grand Ole Opry, like that was my dad's family. They, he was sort of that, that from that generation of folks that the Opry was kind of one of their main entertainments. And so when I, you know, was growing up as a kid, like in the 70s and 80s, I just thought that was sort of funny, you know, like, because we were inundated with stuff. I was like first MTV generation and whatever. We mm. didn't, we took it for granted, I guess, that like there was lots of music and you could find it everywhere. And I got kind of interested in the history of that a little, a little bit young and then came to New York, went to college at Columbia, gravitated towards music fan friends in school, other kids from other um, parts of the country. There were, there was maybe one other person from Nashville that I knew um, at <laughs> Columbia. So, uh, but pretty quickly you would sort of be able to identify like, oh, here's the DC punk kids. And then here's the Boston punk kids. And then, uh, oh, there's some uh, Chapel Hill punk kids. I had no idea, yeah. you know? <laughs> and then... Um, Queens punk is a thing that Dave's <laughs> actually been involved yeah. in a lot. So as you might know from that, like the, you have these little micro scenes and yeah. then you, when they, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they all sort of... You know, you coalesce into a different group of people. You, you know, figure out like who's from where and how you might have something in common with them, whether it's a record that you liked or a band or whatever. So I kind of fell in with the the music fans in that way, somewhat through the radio station at Columbia WKCR, which you know had plenty of, uh, you know, jazz and blues snobs um, and classical music lovers and all of that, but also appealed to some of those music kids also because it, in a limited way, maybe more so than other college stations, promoted some concerts and, you mm-hmm. know, supported like the music on campus. You know, I was in a few little bands, uh, you know, mostly cover bands. Do you have, we've, this is a running thing. People give us the names of these early bands and they're usually pretty amusing. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so I was in one band called the Nash Ramblers after okay. the car. And then, um, <laughs> which was like an old car from the 50s or whatever. We thought that was really clever (laughs) country music name for like a New York City band. And then um, Emmylou Harris like formed an acoustic band and called it the Nash Ramblers at the exact same time. (laughs) Uh. And so we were like, okay, that that we can't be copying her. So then I was in a little band with um, my friend Mac McCann from who was already in Super Chunk. He, He was a great one for forming bands and there'll be a point to my telling you this when we start talking about Flansburg and Williamsburg later. But, sure, yeah, yeah. But basically, you know, through meeting Mac, he, he seemed to know every person who was in a band or making their own music. And he already had like music contacts in New York that weren't, that were professionals. You know, he was sort of unique and rare in that way. Anyway, I was in a couple of different bands with Mac. One were was you called, writing songs in them? Or? We weren't. We were, okay. all, I was all just enthusiastic covering of music at first. So the country band that I had with Mac was called Potter's Field after a Johnny and Jack song. And it, it was exclusively covers of like Kitty Wells and the Lubin Brothers. And, and then, and then occasionally Mac would be like, oh, there's a song 
give me danger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's try that. Or we did wild horses, you know, oh, like yeah. it's just, you know, whatever we sounded <laughs> kind of good in that he played acoustic 12 string and it was just two voices. So it was like very stripped down. Um, I was in another band with Matt called Bricks that was, that was in this case, I was sort of observing Mac and Andrew Webster, the two main guys in the band basically wrote songs that were all like obscure lyrics about in jokes that only they really knew mm. what they were, the songs were about. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it was the first time I'd actually watched somebody try to write songs and fit them to music and, and so it was really fun for me to participate. I was playing percussion and just singing. So okay. it was like not a, you know, I wasn't really playing guitar yet. I mm-hmm. wasn't trying to do something in a particular mold of like, this is a, you know, standard uh, 12 bar blues or whatever. It was, it was very much like coloring outside the lines, no rules kind of thing and and meant to just be fun but we did a lot of recording on four track oh and we actually did put out a record um on early merge record was um the bricks record Some of that stuff is out there and it's, it's uh, you know, it's not really representative of what my own music would be, but I mm-hmm. loved the experience of being in a group and just getting together to play music mostly for fun, but mm-hmm. then also kind of thinking, well, if this sounds good to us, let's try to record it. And then, you know, we eventually, Mac was like, hey, we got a gig on New Year's Eve at CB's Gallery, you know, and... Oh, I played there. Probably my, oh my first, God. you know proper gig outside of like college campus yeah. thing. So we did a few funny gigs in school too, playing for, uh, we opened for Swans um, at Barnard. I think we opened for Hugo Largo, like these in, you know, bands of 80s mm-hmm. of yore. So anyway, but all that experience was just like, made me realize that I did want to try songwriting myself mm-hmm. and I would eventually start trying in college but not really feeling comfortable until you know a few years later sharing my own songs that were country songs those have different rules than I wanted to actually yeah. ask about that yeah what makes a song because I've, I've been listening to your music like non-stop the past like two weeks <laughs> so I already had was very familiar with it mm-hmm. um and sometimes I'm like because I'm, I'm also like I write songs and stuff right. and I've, I'll be like if I were to write like a song in this style I'm like what's right. the difference between my, my normal songs it's still chords melodies you know it's right. not even different chords really it's right. G C whatever mm-hmm. so it's like what is it the is it a lyrical style is it a singing style is it a, a rhythm like because I'm actually not very well versed in country music at all like, well admittedly. it's interesting because I didn't start playing guitar really until college I had played piano when I was growing up and I didn't play it in a way, you know, you learn pieces and I never learned how to like really accompany myself singing a song, you know, like I Mm -hmm. I had a very old school kind of, you know, music education that stopped at a certain point that, you know, to this day, I wish I had 
you know, pressed on and learned more functional stuff about piano and theory when I was that age. But so I started playing guitar and I was pretty rudimentary. So my tools for writing songs that, you know, I was emulating country singers that I admired. So Mm -hmm. I was trying to sort of follow in a template, which when you look at it, I mean, they call country music three chords in the truth. It's not a particularly (laughs) musically sophisticated genre in the sense of, you know, lots of chords and voicings. Like if you Mm -hmm. listen to a lot of 60s country, it's straight up very vanilla style guitar playing. Now, that's not to say there's not a lot of sophistication in the Mm -hmm. players that actually really made great music, but there's a lot of it that's not, (laughs) that's not, you know, that's very straightforward. And even there was um, a term in Nashville uh, when I began to learn about this, where um, Nashville players would say, oh, you've got some of those out-of-town chords you're putting in the song, which <laughs> would funny. mean like a two minor or a, yeah. you know, a six minor. Like, you know, we don't do that around here. So um, I'm not answering your question at all. But basically, <laughs> no, I think I started with this kind of very, you know, let's say I wanted to try to write like what a Kitty Wells song would be or mm-hmm. a, um, Loretta Lynn or, I mean, you get a little bit more you know, kind of uh, advanced when you're doing like Willie Nelson or Merle Haggard, but still like the actual root of stuff, it's not super, you know, complex. It's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. You can you can play, you know, GCD and and make a beautiful country song like yeah. that. And it's, it's, simplicity is actually part of the beauty of it. So, mm-hmm. but that's not to say, I mean, I think I also just being the age that I am and having like a mom who loved Joan Baez and inhaled a lot of 60s music, like, I love Beatles chords, you know, mm-hmm. and I love, um, so, and, and in fact, when you dive really deep into Merle Haggard, you realize like, oh, he definitely heard the Beatles because he was starting <laughs> to put stuff in that was just not common in country music before yeah. that time. Or you realize like, you know, who the Beatles love, the Everly Brothers, you know, and that, yeah. so there are all these filters of like, kind of, um, you know, things that don't you don't necessarily think of that are linked that are, and you realize mm-hmm. like it's all kind of one stew and you can pull out what, what serves whatever particular song. Yeah. But it was, it took me a while to figure out that, that that was okay. I think also coming from an indie background, there was a pretty severe um, bias against just people who knew how to <laughs> play, actually play music, <laughs> you know, like a yeah. lot of, uh, and I'm sorry, I don't <laughs> Show mean to, well, yeah, like, you know, oh, well, that's too pro. Or, or when, and in fact, even just when I started to try to put together a band in New York, you know, you'd have to hire a drummer who knew how to play country stuff. Like, yeah. you couldn't just depend on, you, know, you couldn't play a shuffle with somebody who never played a shuffle, you know. And I think for me, going from having this, like, really sort of idyllic campus experience of, playing in bands on campus and we were being very freestyle and whatever we wanted to do was fine to going like I'm trying to show this band of like New York ringers how to play my songs and they're all looking at me like <laughs> that's wrong and this is wrong wow. and this is wrong and like it was a really um, <laughs> kind of tough transition I mean I think I've come to a point now where I realize like you can tell whoever needs to step off <laughs> that, they, <laughs> that they can do that but there is something to, to being able to say well I'm actually playing the rhythm part this way because yeah. I want it to be XYZ instead of like I don't know how to tell you the difference between what you're playing and what I'm playing like there's I had to sort of 
grow up a little bit in terms of what mm. I could execute myself. Anyway, that has nothing to do with the, the <laughs> That's question. Very, it's the, the exact sort of thing I'm interested in. <laughs> Despite the fact that I was trying to emulate Kitty Wells and William Nelson and Merle Haggard, what did I grow up listening to? Nick mm-hmm. Lowe and Elvis Costello. Mm-hmm. So like I yeah. kind of, and I really do think like, you know, Nick Lowe's maybe my, my favorite songwriter, you know, next to some of those country guys. And so the filters that I had, like I couldn't unprogram <laughs> mm-hmm. the Nick and Elvis. So like I have yeah. a bias for stuff that sometimes clever and... And short, like most of your songs are yeah, the three minute. Right. And, ha- you know. and of course they're all influenced by the by that yeah. classic country stuff too, to some degree, along with many other things, obviously. So, um, And you like when someone if they listen to your music and they can point to the influence, do you like that? Or do you want to be more like I'm my own? Well, I think, I think what's happened in my own records that is, you know, I was somewhat lucky for in a way because it wasn't really my doing, but, Mm -hmm. um, because I did end up with musicians in New York who we shared a lot of love for old music, both, you know, country and classic pop and rock and Motown and whatever. So there's a kind of a 60s, you know, kind of pop vibe to mm-hmm. some of my records. Yeah. You know, you've got 12-string guitar and, you know, the, the organ sounds on certain things. Like they, yeah. you know, you know, we weren't trying to sound like Sir Douglas Quintet, but it kind of has a reference to that or whatever. Mm-hmm. Do you ever think of me? You know, I think that that helped the songs that I might have otherwise felt like were a little bit um, like bare bones or, you know, it kind of helped flush them out in a way that made them then when we would go to play them and perform them live, like mm-hmm. feel like, oh, this is a, you know, this is the song that everybody taps their foot in during the show or whatever. It's yeah. not just me in my room, like with my little work that I made. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was helped that I had some really great, you know, kind of compadres bring the songs to life in the studio. Mm-hmm. And, and then when we would tour and and play live so did you find that there was any resistance to playing that kind of style of music in new york in the 80s actually no what what was cool was that there was this underground country scene all along that Mm. you know i mean if you go back to you know the guy from the blake babies had that hello stranger band and the you know evan dando was covering patsy klein on you know there was this like little thread of like appreciation for the like fringy you know, rockabilly country. There was mm-hmm. this kind of like in the makeup of what people had been exposed to. There was a little niche of that that I, you know, gravitated toward towards people who liked it. Um, mm-hmm. And then eventually playing in a New York club scene in the New York club scene. You know, as adopting this as my home base and staying here after college. If you were going to play in bars in New York, you did have to like know a two-hour set of stuff that would keep people going to the bar, you know? Yeah. So that required also like a different, a little bit of different education. I couldn't just do, you know, Melvin Montgomery covers that sounded like cool spaghetti Western, you know, whatever. <laughs> like it had to, there had to be follow up with something that would be, make people feel like, you know, kind of peppy also. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. You know, that is, a, you know, playing the bar scene in New York was a little different education, but 
Yes. It was sort of at the time I was doing that that I met Flansburg. I had moved oh, to yeah, Williamsburg. Oh, yeah, we can go right to that. And, um, Perfect segue. And <laughs> yes, I'll just say, like... Um, You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, um, you know, that basically when I met Flans and Linnell, they were living in my neighborhood. You know, we met through sort of mutual friends. They were in other local bands. The Giants were, like, the only guys that I knew that actually had, like... A major label record deal. Like what? What year was this? This, this was, was like ninety one. Ninety one. Okay. Yeah. So um, you know, and had had uh, you know they had Birdhouse at that point. So yeah. like we were, we were like, oh yeah, those guys. Like I know who you are. You know. <laughs> um, oh, I didn't realize you live a block and a half from my house. Yeah. <laughs> so it was the time for me. Also, when I was like in between jobs and whatever, you're in your early mid twenties. Like you know, you can justify like, sure, I'll come over to your house and <laughs> work on stuff that's maybe no one will ever hear like like, let's play music like you know it's just like this kind of open sweet um approach to make music and it reminded me of of that sort of openness in my my amongst my college friends of like just Mm -hmm. let's try that you know like who cares if the drummer doesn't isn't from texas you know like we'll just we'll just do it can you give us first impressions on meeting them? <laughs> so I met Flans first and um, with my friend Jay Sherman Godfrey, who I eventually mm, was yeah. in a band with. And I think it was on the sidewalk outside of Brownies on Avenue mm. A. And I forget who was playing, or, but it was like probably could have been any one of hundreds of things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we got introduced and I... You know, he and Jay were talking very authoritatively and enthusiastically about some (laughs) guitar thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I remember bonding with him early on about like guitar stores in New York, and we start got on a conversation about guitar stores, and Mm. he was saying how intimidating this one guitar store was in the Lower (laughs) East Side, Mm -hmm. and and I had I'd literally walked into the same store, and no one would. I had an acoustic guitar, and I didn't realize like they mostly worked on electric stuff. Oh, but no God. one would even talk to me. I was yeah. like standing there for twenty minutes with an acoustic case yeah. before anybody would be like, "Yeah, what do you want?" Yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> had that experience. <laughs> yeah. So we we kind of bonded over that. The, just the silliness of like, uh, I'm trying to do something here, and um, <laughs> but obviously they were quite already quite accomplished and mm-hmm. you know successful and doing. Um, something that was, you know, I don't know if I th- realized the first few times that we hung out that they were working on a record or, mm-hmm. you know, right. quite that to that degree. But I did eventually go to Flans's home studio, you know, which was about a block and a half from my apartment in Williamsburg. And he showed me the answering machine that was for the dial-a-song. Yeah. <laughs> and... And I think he might have even had like an old phone, you know, hooked up to it, like a mm-hmm. real, you know, like your grandma would have the rotary yeah. <laughs> phone. But then he also had um, a set of like ADAT machines and um, a home studio mm-hmm. and had been in the building a long time and had, you know, uh, and I remember realizing like, okay, these guys are, you know, more artsy and uh, <laughs> been to art school and, yeah. you know, have... Uh, you know, not just musical ideas, but sometimes like conceptual things that they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I do remember when they were, you know, just being amazed at what they were trying to do with the, um, with the, uh, I forget what it's called, the, um, the, all the like 30 second songs. Fingertips. Fingertips. Yeah. <laughs> I remember him playing me some of the, the rough oh, recordings wow. Wow. of that and, and, you know, including like it had Amy Allison yeah. and, um, 
you could also see like they had fun incorporating like people from their milieu, you know, like mm-hmm. in just in what they were doing, um, yeah. you know, more so than maybe bands who were trying to be real serious about being a band. And, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> and not that they weren't serious at all. Well, and, that's like the paradox of They Might Be Giants. That's right. what we talk about in almost every episode. Right. Well, well also just that, um, you know, very ambitious. Uh, yeah. They try to do a lot of ambitious things. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, if you get hung up on like the, the sort of quirkiness of some of the things they recorded, you can really <laughs> miss the fact that they were quite serious about yeah. continuing, you know, to achieve things and figure that out. And there was, I'm sure, a lot of pressure on them. You know, mm-hmm. I, I remember actually hearing a version of, of you know, you know, Flans telling what, what it was like to have to you know, tell their record label that they weren't going to have Elvis Costello <laughs> produce the record yeah, they're working on. Right. And, you know, just how hard that was, you know, to kind of mm-hmm. have to stand up for their own vision of what they wanted to do. And yeah. that was all like, as I, I certainly was nowhere near um, being ready to like make records myself, but mm-hmm. I was certainly sitting there observing like, okay, this is, you have to be really got to, put all the energy you've got into yeah. this if you're going to do this professionally and mm-hmm. and try to um you know take advantage of every opportunity you get and you know in some ways like don't don't second guess a lot of stuff just like keep keep making stuff mm-hmm. you know um and you know looking back on it it's really interesting to me how um openly they did that with you know a lot of i mean i'm had never been in a professional recording studio. I'd only recorded four track, <laughs> you know, stuff yeah, in someone's yeah. bedroom before they asked me to come sing uh, on the their guitar, record, yeah. you know, at the, for the guitar. Oh yes. Yeah, this will this could be the centerpiece of what we're we're discussing. Well, it's funny because when I I was <laughs> what working. What is that, Jordan? For oh, the that's the at home. <laughs> yes. that's the very rare uh, guitar EP. That's right. Out of print. Is that right? Long out of print. It's very yeah. I I used uh, when I first became a fan. I when I become a real big fan of someone, I make it a mission to just like find everything I could. <laughs> so I remember looking for that in, in stores for years in New York City, which would be impossible now because there's no record stores anymore. I know. There's but no New the, York City. Yeah, there's no New York City. But at the time, I used to just zigzag through all the record stores looking for all these rare albums and EPs. And so that so you're on the cover of this one, right? Do you remember that? <laughs> what that I do. context of that photo is? I do. Well, I remember. I remember we'd recorded the song and I, you know, had gone up to the magic shop and mm. again, it was pretty intimidating, but I just, you know, they put me in the booth and I sang it a few times and they were like, okay, you know, it's probably the first time any, I'd watched someone make a comp of a vocal, you know, yeah, like all yeah. of that stuff. I sang a little harmony. Did you make up that harmony or was that told? I actually you? remember Linnell trying to coach me on something <laughs> and I mm-hmm. wasn't quite getting exactly what he wanted, I don't think, but we came up with an approximate <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> version that worked yeah. out okay. What was So what's the very start of this? Because, so how did, do you remember them telling you they want you on this, this album? I remember first hearing the song in Flansburg's little home studio mm. on Fifth Street. 
And then I, I, so I didn't know anything about the genesis of where they'd come up with the idea for it. Yeah. It seemed very spontaneous to me in yeah. terms of the lyrics. Like it literally almost seemed like John kind of pulled them out of his hat. Yeah, I was going to ask if you know who Jim is referring to, because it says, (laughs) is it Jim playing the guitar? (laughs) Right. So there was a guy named Jim who was a friend, and he's in the video. (laughs) Oh, um, okay. And Jim, and I forget his wife's name, you know, there's just like a circle of friends. (laughs) Right. Who knows? I feel like that might have been the Jim. But as I recall, I don't think he was like, he wasn't you know, a member of the band. He was sort yeah. of a member of extended group of friends. Like, yeah. So there was this sort of referencing, again, a little bit of an in-joke, like it meant something to them, mm-hmm. but it also functioned in the song. And, you yeah. know, again, reminded me of my my pals in, you know, college who had the, this, you know, sort of like lack of fear <laughs> of uh-huh. just like, oh, here I came up with this. It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, even for They Might Be Giants, um, the guitar is an unusual track. Yeah. Because as w- weird as their songs can be, they still tend to be the, the verse, chorus, verse, bridge structure. Right. But the guitar is like a jam with very free form. Right. So it's it's even unusual for them. Right. And I don't think I knew any of that. Like I think yeah. I I think I was listening to whatever their like I was just with in John's studio with him mm-hmm. as he sort of seemed to sketch out these lyrics and he was like try this, try this. Mm. You know, so we did Do you remember any rejected uh, I don't. Ideas? Unfortunately, yeah. I don't remember um yeah, I don't remember. It was always the um the lion sleeps tonight. Yes. It was always that. Yeah. yeah, it was always the, um, I remember kind of getting the giggles about the lion being on the phone Yeah, and thinking like that reminded me of like a parental image, almost like, no, your father can't come right now. He's on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, just like having these funny little snippets of, mm-hmm. of, um, of, you know, possible, like almost impressionistic meaning mm-hmm. like it was just like not supposed to be a linear thing with a real meaning it was more imagistic or something yeah so. well a lot of their um the imagery in their lyrics because they're both big fans of walt kelly and pogo mm-hmm. that's like a good example of like a lot of their lyrics have that absurd funny cartoony quality but there's surrealism too right, right. and it, it that the, the guitar always kind of reminded me of like a pogo comic or something right. mm. so i kind of feel like it was september when we when we recorded the actual vocal at the magic shop and then maybe mm. a month later or a couple months later. So Flans was like, I don't know if it was like the day before I'd been out till very late, like mm-hmm. three in the morning. And then I think he might've called in the morning and said, do you have time today mm. to do a, a photo shoot? For, oh, yeah. We're going to make a single of, and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Interesting choice for yes. a single. So, um, so I was like, Oh, okay. And then I was like, I've been out kind of late. So I think that's partially why you don't see my whole face because I'm kind of look like girl haggard um, (laughs) otherwise. But, uh, and we literally like, I just put on a dress. This was my guitar, the Mm. national that had belonged to my, it was a gift to my mom that I brought to New York. And it was a really old like guitar from the forties that was never super functional. I never could really play it in a mm. band setting, but yeah. it was the coolest looking guitar I had. Mm-hmm. So I grabbed <laughs> that and we just went down the street and he like snapped some pictures on whatever camera he had. And then we were done. I think we went to like Kellogg's, the diner afterwards. <laughs> like, oh, I love know? that thing. <laughs> so uh, that was 
surprising, but also like, again, I was, it was my early twenties. I think I was trying to get a job. I started a temp job. And so Mm. there was like this kind of like on again, off again, like, you know, wasn't always like keeping track of what was going on with the, with their record. But Mm -hmm. then even a few more months later, they were like, oh, okay, now we're going to make a video. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. (laughs) So, and for that, I was like, okay, well, what do you, I mean, to this day, I actually wish I'd made him tell me what the scenario was yeah. <laughs> beforehand because I remember going into it going, well, what are you going to, what are you going to make me do? He's like, just show up, bring the guitar. And, you know, didn't say anything about like what to wear or how to, you know, <laughs> what I was going to be doing. And so then to this day, I'm like, I look so stiff. I'm just sitting there like strumming the guitar. Like I have no idea. What it's totally, like that's probably what they liked about it. It works because if the whole video, there's like zombies later in yes, the video. Who are, so it, it has this uh, strange living dead quality it does to have, it. Though it I never thought of your part in that video as, as that, but that's interesting. Well, it just was, uh, you know, um, and again, I, I loved how I showed up at his is his apartment again. And they just brought in like an art director who mm. made it look you know, she basically like put up a little, some little curtains and centered like whatever I was sitting in, and like, you know, there were maybe I don't there maybe a little lamp or some other little object in yeah. the scene, and I was like, oh, she turned this thing that just looks like a Brooklyn, you know, Williamsburg apartment into now it looks like a set of a some, set. Mm-hmm. you know, of what a, you know, who who know that years later like girls would be making like the, uh, you know, the the HBO version of just what we were doing in that yeah. little video, like just silly, like, oh, we're just going to set dress this and make it look cute. Mm-hmm. And, but it was all just crammed there in there in his space. Like it was a very, um, I mean, even though that video was very ambitious, he directed the whole thing and mm-hmm. there's a whole, you know, larger thing with the zombies at the Polish national home. Yes, that's right. You know, it was very much made out of like, you know, this, the stuff around him, you mm-hmm. know, and that was something I also kind of appreciated about the band. They like, you know, had that kind of putting the neighborhood to work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Kind of I, feel definitely. like friends and family yeah, pitching in. Their albums have this like New York feel, even like more narrow, like Brooklyn yeah. feel, or even more narrow, like Williamsburg feel. Right. Um, I'm definitely I, I, Williamsburg of that moment. Like it was a good little mm-hmm. snapshot of What that. are you holding in the video? There's You're holding some weird thing that looks like a giant gun. It is a gun. What it's is, a plastic gun. I it looks very strange though. No <laughs> idea why. It was a huge thing. It was like a huge plastic <laughs> gun. Isn't that something Flansburg told you to do? Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't have any idea what the, you know, overriding concept <laughs> yeah. was. Um, well, it looks like, it, to me, it appears as if you're forcing them to play the guitar. Because <laughs> they're, they're on both sides of you right. playing guitars. Right. And you're kind of looking kind of authoritative with a gun. Stern. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I not to... Uh, yeah, the whole thing was... Um, especially at that point, because I do think in the making of the video, like they went on to do that Polish national home stuff. And there were mm-hmm. a lot of people for that part. Yeah. And I think they were really rushing to like grab everything they needed. Again, the first time I've ever seen like a professional video made mm. um, and Flans was directing the whole thing. How is he as a director? He seemed quite to know what he was doing and mm-hmm. have, you know, a lot of had everybody kind of geared up and, mm-hmm. you know, was trying to just, make sure it all happened. And, and that was something that I always experienced with, um, with John Flansburg. So he's kind of 
got this very pragmatic side. Like, if we're going to do this now, we have to do this. Yeah. You know, and this has to happen. So let's, are we doing it? You yeah. Know, let's do it. Things <laughs> so. sometimes don't get done unless someone, was, well, I heard that's what like John Lennon and Paul McCartney was like. Paul McCartney was the one who's like, we're doing this. Right. And John Lennon would be like, all right. And he'd show up at the studio. Right. John wanted to sleep all day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've read, a, I read like a bunch of books about the Beatles and they all said that. Right. They all were just like, John Lennon wouldn't have done any music if Paul didn't Aww. like push him to do it. Or he would have done it by himself right. in his home. Right. At a different. Well, I'm trying to actively destroy the podcast. So. Yeah, it's good. It's good to have that, uh, you know. <laughs> I don't know that there's such a dynamic between Flansburg and Linnell. Oh, yeah. I, was, I always want to ask people of yeah. the differences between them because that's just an endlessly interesting thing for, for me is the two personalities making this one right. thing. <laughs> well, oh, wow. Whoa. Oh, we get the Christmas lights. Oh, that's nice. Um, yeah, just for people who are <laughs> listening. It looks like an indie movie now. That's right. The the um, Christmas tree lights just Everything's came on Everything's just so magical. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully they've scared away the gnats. The gnats are doing were... like a dance, like a they're, they're chorus line. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, it's like the nutcracker out here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, we could use a flask and it would maybe be, <laughs> be just a little bit more magical, but... yeah. Something we've we've gotten like interesting, you know, answers about is like their different approaches to things, and even um, even like little moments of catching them come up with ideas that would later be songs. I don't know if you have any of that. I but don't have. That we've gotten inside. some interesting oh, that's things. Cool though. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do though. I guess I remember, you know. So I got to know John, and we, John Flansburg, we were, um, you know, quite friendly, and then I. Uh, was friends with his girlfriend Robin and we mm. Robin and I were in a band together so I spent a lot of time with with Flansburg and Robin and John Linnell I didn't know as closely but I I think I probably hung out with him quite a bit we played uh, I played a bunch of the shows on the tour on yeah the I wanted Coast, to ask about that too um, when they finally got around to touring and you know just kind of had a, a similar impression of like you know here's a person who is like very much involved in this artistic community in Williamsburg and you know maybe they had some overlap in their friends around you know in and amongst you know that community but that you know John had a I don't know how I would really describe his you know maybe he had the more like you know he played the accordion and he seemed to like you know maybe uh have a different type of musicality than John Flansburg's. Mm. Um, and I, I don't know what to attribute that to really, but maybe mm -hmm. a little bit less. Like John Flansburg seems to know quite a bit about like old pop music and, old, you know, and, and Linnell seemed to have a dreamier, you know, maybe a different setting of, and I don't know, you know, what, what his sort of background was and things that he knew or whatever, but that they had these kind of complimentary things that they could do, you know, music, musical tools. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, but I never really got to see them write together. So I mm, don't have yeah. a sense of the, um, of the, the way they both collaborate and also then write on their own. You know, I do remember things that I played on the radio, like Linnell's solo projects, the state songs yeah, yeah. or, you know, what have you. And you, know, you get a really clear sense like, oh, here's a guy who could write a song to, about just about anything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, whereas I think with Flansburg, you sort of feel like he has to get caught by an idea or something to. I can, I can, I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, interesting. So, but that's like about as far as my kind of observation of their mm -hmm. 
kind of dynamic between them would go. When you would join them on stage during those that tour for Apollo 18, like what were those shows like? Was it was it the biggest crowds you had been in front of? And yeah, what was that like? I played with them at the Beacon in Central Park at Summer Stage. Ladies and gentlemen, to a few new members of the band from Lower Manhattan, Mr. Frank London on trumpet, ladies and gentlemen. Flying in from Buffalo, New York on the trombone is Mr. Rick McCray. To their left on keyboards and saxophones around the evening will be Kurt Cardinal Hoffman. And we'd like to announce our special guest, wherever she might be, Laura Rapp. This Laura Cantrell, come on up stage. You sang on a few extra songs too, <laughs> and I don't know if you remember. There's you sang on Toddler Highway. Really? Yeah, and then you we did. We have proof. And you did the um, the giant marching band drum in Whistling in the Dark. Oh, I'd right, love right, to hear right, about right, right, playing right. that. <laughs> right. Laura's going to play the bass drum now. And I'm going to sing the song just as soon as I get to it. A woman came up to me, so I left the boy in her Wrong ideas in the deal to you, though I am not unkind. She looked at me, I looked at something written across her scalp. These are the words that it faintly said as I tried to call for help. There's only one thing that I know how to do well, and I I think basically they asked me if I would come sing with them at the beacon or something. Mm. And then we went up and did Toads up in New Haven. Mm, yeah. I, ha- I remember I had to leave work and take the subway up to, I feel like I went up to the Bronx and yeah. like the van picked me up, but it was something like, you know, above 125th Street. It was um, far uptown to catch up with the van to drive up to up to Toads. But I did those couple of things. And then, and I think on both of those shows, I just came out and sang the guitar. Mm-hmm. But at the Variety Theater, they did a run of shows there. And yeah. they had a lot of guests. Sid Straw, and I think Brian Dewan might have come out on some some part of that. Um, and some other folks. Jay, Jay Sherman Godfrey did come out on some of that. And mm-hmm. uh, and I think they asked me to come and do one. And, and then I... But they were doing maybe like... It was either a month of shows on the weekend or it was, it was several of them. I don't remember exactly what the span of them was, but I showed up for the second one and they were like, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> we didn't realize you were going to... And I was like, I'm coming for all of them. I'm going to sing the song at every show. Yeah. And so then they were like, okay, well, then you need to do something else. So that's mm-hmm. when they, they come up with the other mm-hmm. stuff that... Uh, and I do remember pl- having to play the big... Yeah, what was that like? (laughs) You know, just that felt like very, uh, again, it just felt like they were amusing themselves. (laughs) Like, like here we are 
this is our show. And again, I didn't have the perspective really. I hadn't seen them as a duo. So these were their oh, okay. first shows with a with the the band, mm-hmm. Tony Mamoni and everybody. I just thought it looked like a lot of fun. Like they're, you know, this is a cool <laughs> thing to get to come be a part of. But I think for them realizing that they were on tour, you know, later I might have had the perspective like you do this stuff over and over and over again. Eventually you do sort of hope for like, how can we make this a little different tonight? Or mm-hmm. how can it be a little bit, you know, less monotonous for us? Or is it a, is it a little more, just a little added something since we're here in our hometown? Like, right. we can have this part be different than it will be, you know, tomorrow night in D.C. or whatever. So, mm-hmm. um, but it just, it really did feel like, you know, just, there was the vibe of like, let's put on a show, mm-hmm. you know, let's go do it. Let's have fun. Ryan Doherty <laughs> said something about they all got, what was it, kazoos or trumpets or something <laughs> right. at one show just to amuse themselves. Yeah, I wish I had a recording. I've got a pretty giant archive of fan recordings, oh, really? but not, not oh. some very interesting ones that I've heard about. Well, so, you know, another thing I will just say, that going to Toad, so that was the first time I'd been in that kind of mm-hmm. rock club. Um, not, I mean, look, I'd been in rock clubs, but but that place was like fans hanging off of the rafters. Like yeah. they were literally like... Uh, going nuts <laughs> and and I realized that it was a younger audience than mostly younger than we were on stage so it, was, it felt like oh my god you have screaming kids like yeah. you know really <laughs> super into you like mm-hmm. this I mean it felt very um, there was this sort of built in excitement you know seeing their audience like so thrilled to like have them come out and do whatever mm-hmm. you know so it was a very cool experience for me Again, before I'd done any of my own touring or mm-hmm. figured out how to like, how do you keep somebody's attention over, you know, an hour and a half, you yeah. know, f- of, okay, here's one pretty song. Here's, let's do another one. Well, you know, you can't just string a bunch of songs together. Like there's another mm-hmm. layer of communication that happens. And how do you connect with that? And mm-hmm. I think it was interesting for me to see the Giants like try to have that like kind of a, a conversation is not quite the right word, but like provide the space for everybody to laugh together and move around and pogo up and down, like, you know, all the things that you want to do at a, at a show. So yeah. it was really, um, it was really impressive mm-hmm. to me how good they were at, um, that part of the job, you know? Yeah. And it was, it was definitely, um, again, they, they seem to, they're certainly quite professional, you know, there's a sound check and, mm-hmm. you know, it, attention paid to cues and the wasn't so freewheeling that it was like going to be sloppy but at the same time there was this sort of spirit of like let's be spontaneous let's have Mm -hmm. a little fun with this you know let's try this thing or whatever so Mm -hmm. um you know it was a it was a they were good examples, good role models. Is there anything you you took into then when you started touring with your band and supporting your albums? I'm not sure that I would say there was anything directly like um, in an artistic sense, but I do think in the feeling like you're responsible for these people bought tickets and they, and they, um, you know, expect to be entertained, you know, Mm -hmm. like taking that seriously (laughs) and being prepared, you know, to be, you know, figure out like what, at what point do you say this thing that's like, you know, becomes sort of the running joke or whatever, sure. like that, you know, figure out your moments mm-hmm. that you're going to not just through the music itself, but try to 
kind of connect with this audience or figure figure them out. Um, I listened. There's a live show of yours that's on YouTube, actually, uh, that I listened. And you, there's a lot of great little like stories between the songs and the way you introduce the songs that makes you makes the audience listen to the lyrics more. You right. know, like I, I always like that. Like when there's a good a little preamble before the song that makes you appreciate the the lyrics a little bit more. Now I'm like, I wish I didn't do that so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Dave um, used to Dave was the bass player in my band. He would always just tell me to stop talking yeah. between songs because I, I just like to talk. He just has to be cut off. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, about what year was it? Eighteen years ago? Mm. Eighteen years ago, um when I went on tour with Elvis Costello. Oh wow. And so we had to do, you know, 18 shows as the opening act for Elvis wow. Costello. And Jeremy and I called Flansburg and we were like, okay, we've never done this before. Mm. We were having to go from, you know, Boston to Philly to DC to, you know, wherever from there, um, Pittsburgh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, he's got a whole crew and lighting and, you know, and so tell us what we need to know. And um, I do remember Flansburg being so generous saying like, here's how not to not go broke doing that. Here's nah. how to um, occasionally, you know, like keep the band in good spirits because mm-hmm. you're going to like have everybody in close quarters for a lot of the time. And then you're going to run on and off and do what you have to do in 35 minutes. And, yeah. you know, your whole day is going to revol- revolve around being ready for that. Right. You know, um, here's how to not piss off their crew. Here's how to... <laughs> yeah. Don't be prima donna about moving your stuff. Like, you know, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Like, just be ready for all these things. And I feel like he should write a book about this, about that kind of thing. He just had a great wealth of, of like, totally, you know, earned knowledge mm-hmm. that he'd built up of, you know, how to do this, you know, and to not drive yourself crazy, but to actually have it execute on the, uh, you know, task at hand and get it done. And then, you know, be able to have that opportunity of playing. How were those shows for opening for Elvis Costello in terms of the audience reaction? They were good. We actually did like a north, a northeast. There was like a Midwest bit, a northeast bit, and a southeast bit. And so we started actually in the Midwest and went from like Kansas City, St. Louis, Bloomington, Indiana, all around, and then came back to New York, did a bunch. And then for the end, we went and we actually played in Nashville at the Ryman Auditorium. And Mm. so that for me was really probably the highlight because my whole family came and Mm. it was sort of the first time they were like, okay, she's really doing this. Like my parents had figured it out, but (laughs) the rest of the extended family were like, oh, Mm -hmm. okay. Um, So (laughs) it was a really sweet, you know, experience. Um, But the the audiences were great. You know, Elvis's fans are mostly music fans. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not just Elvis fans. So yeah. there were plenty of people who, you know, knew their Graham Parsons and their, you know, all of the, all the rest. So mm-hmm. it was it was really, uh, I mean, obviously we're not touring right now, but, you know, we still hear from people who are like, oh, we saw you, you know, with Elvis. Mm-hmm. And do you like touring? I love performing. Yeah. So, you know, if you're going to perform, yeah. <laughs> you've got to, Got to get out there and do it. So, but it's definitely um, a hard, I mean, I think I also realized somewhat on that Elvis tour that somebody who's done it as long as as he has, and this could apply to the Giants too, um, you know, just the fact that you're on tour is not the only, you know, that's all the only thing you have going on. So you still have to have your life continuing. And mm. it's not like a bubble of like, well, I'm tour- on tour right now, so I'm not going to, 
you know, not do the other things that need to be done for my business or my yeah. art or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, I think f- the first few times you go out yourself, you're, it's just over overwhelming to like try to just show up and play. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you get over, you know, the novelty of being in different places, then you're like, okay, the, the you know, the other 23 hours of the day are, can be pretty mundane and, you know, you right. need to like kind of purposefully use your time. I've probably, toured more in England at this point than I really have in the United Mm. States, which I always also loved. And that is a a thing that's, you know, just a unique... English crowds, I mean, what I've heard a lot of, they might be giant shows in England and the crowds sound insane to me. Well, that's (laughs) funny because, see, I've I've played the folky circuit. Okay. um, And so the audiences for that um, are really restrained. Oh, wow. Like... (laughs) Um, I definitely have played some places where if it weren't for like the pint glasses going up and down, you could see that there wouldn't be, have been any discernible like activity mm-hmm. in the audience. You're like, wow. are you there? Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, I've loved that traveling. Well, you know, this year was my 20th anniversary of my first record. So mm. we were supposed to be doing a bunch of stuff both oh. here and there, and it'll sort itself out when there's not a pandemic. But yeah. I've spent a lot of time thinking this year as I have not been able to travel, you know, how fortunate I was to get to do that stuff. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so here's the Hello EP. Hello EP. You even you signed it for me like 20 years ago. Oh my it's kind of strange. <laughs> um I had forgotten about that, actually, um, (laughs) because I had this in storage. So I'd love to talk about the Hello EP and how that came about and what it was like recording with with Flansburg, who produced it and he played on it. Right. And all the other guests are on it, Brian Dewan and Robin and all that. So I have to say on a personal level, the Hello EP, a friend of mine had made me a cassette of a bunch of Hello EPs. And I would like just listen to it over and over and over. So like I'm very fam- like intimately familiar with like this one release you've done, even right. though I also have your albums. Right. But this one got played kind of over and over and over sure. and over. So like it's one of my favorite uh, like CDs that I have because I just I really love these songs. I love the sound of it too. like capture some charm like mm-hmm. um and again all done just in Flans's studio so that meant just set up and mic'd in his little tiny living space in this you know Brooklyn floor through apartment so the middle room of the apartment was where the recording gear was mm. and the band set up in the back room which was sort of where the kitchen yeah it was sort of like the kitchen dining space and um and does it look like a studio like, is there like a window and, you know... Like, oh, no, no, no. It just looks, looks like, like an apartment. apartment. Okay. It, it looked like a Williamsburg apartment with like... Because some people go all out, you Yeah, know, no, it was that. a railroad apartment, basically, with some uh, recording gear in it and some instruments in it. And mm-hmm. um, so Flans was really, you know, did an amazing job of like 
getting the mic placement and because there was basically no separation and yes. <laughs> I think Will Rigby is playing snare or like very light drums. Yeah. But anyway, so we set it up and did like all the music, all the tracking in one day. Oh, wow. Um, oh, so Grayboff is on this. Oh, Artie Baguer. Wow, i totally forgotten that. He's still around. He's a bass player who played in a bunch of um, just Lower East Side bands, mm-hmm. but was an upright player. So, you know, that... Yeah, it sounds great. W- weren't so many upright players to choose from. Mm-hmm. So, are, are these, like, the first songs you ever wrote? Like, what are the origins of these songs? So, Cellar Door, I was my first, I, I would say, like, successful, successfully finished song. Mm-hmm. I had other song <laughs> fragments before. Sure. But funny enough, and I know this is going to sound, I feel like I'm name droppy, but... But it's so weird. Like, I was going to see Super Chunk was opening for Mud Honey. And I was kind of, like, working on the lyrics while I was on my way to that show. And I thought, well, these these are not bad. Like, maybe I'll work on this when I get home. And then I went and saw the show and the, you know, whole big rock scene. Very grunge moment. Because this was probably, like, also, like, 1991 or something. And then I went home and finished it. You know, Mm -hmm. so I'd been attempting um, songwriting, but hadn't felt like I'd got all the pieces of a song together that fit together that, and mm. then seemed like a whole thing. And this was the first time that it felt like it landed in a place where, oh, it doesn't seem like it needs another part or, mm. or one of the parts is like incredibly weak compared to the rest right. of them. Like, yeah, you know, I've so. had that happen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, I, I was rereading all the lyrics. I, I, it's up to you if you want to discuss right. them. I know like like They Might Be Giants like never really talk about their lyrics. Right. About, but Cellar Door is very interesting. It seems like a little more... I'd call it a little more ambiguous than the than the other songs right. on the al- on the EP. You know, I think I just um, I don't really remember the inspiration. I will say I was going out and seeing a bunch of stuff by like local bands like Mumbo Gumbo and uh, the world famous Blue Jays and some of these kind of country bands, and I think I was starting to just to me it sounded like kind of um, you know the cellar door and the kitchen floor. Like it sounded like it could be and really old, you know, because it was such common, like, weird things. Uh, or not weird, but common um, and kind of non-specific. So you didn't really know mm-hmm. what exactly it was about. But it could be, you know, like an old blues lyric would be like, what is that? What does mm-hmm. that thing, image mean, you know? So It's a great song. I mean, I love it. I love all these songs, really. that definitely has the lyrics that I, you know, I understood more. But right. um, Well, they're also, it, that's really an answer song to mm. um, a, an old country song called Roll Truck Roll. Oh, wow, okay. Which is written by Red Simpson. I'm going down the Feather River Canyon Gotta go down Donner Summit is closed Another 80 miles 
Cause I'll be late getting home Road truck road Take me to my baby I'm tired of being alone Road truck road I want to see my And that was my husband now, Jeremy Tepper, um, had a band that did truck driving covers and mm-hmm. music stuff. I said something to him like, uh, you know, I'd love to um, write an answer song. And he he it ended up being a bet. Like he was like, okay, well, if I'll pay you whatever if you can do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I was like, all right, well, I'm going to do it. And so I wrote this little answer tune. It has nothing to do, like the melody itself, really the title is the only thing that reoccurs in either, mm-hmm. <laughs> in both songs. But it was my attempt to, uh, to write like a truck driving answer tune from like the woman's point of view. So... Yeah, it's a real sweet, there's like just a real sweetness to it. As far as I can tell, there's no like, it's not, there's not like a conflict. It's just like a very sweet song about just wanting someone to come home. Right. You know, and it, I find that very like touching. Wholesome. Yeah. It's kind of wholesome. It's funny, I played it recently, like as recently as like two or three years ago with the band, just out mm. of, you know, just wanting to dust off something that we hadn't played in a really long time. And it was a lot of fun to play. And I mm-hmm. hadn't thought about it. You know, when I when I wrote all of this stuff, I really hadn't played with a band too much, yeah. you know. So, um, anyway. And then I would love to talk about No Place For Me. Right. Just kind of kind of the ballad. Yeah, it just was an attempt to, to write a ballad. Um, I, I do remember also, like, I probably wrote that after Cellar Door. Mm-hmm. And I was very proud of it because I felt like it was, it was like a, uh, it just s- seemed like, again, it could be an example of an old country song. So I was yeah. like, okay, I've, I've written something. It's not embarrassing. Like, it doesn't sound like I'm singing exactly about myself. Yeah, I was going to say, it's kind of like a character song. Yeah. It almost seems like, like a, a convict or something. <laughs> right. Like, it's you know, someone who's done a lot of bad things. Right. I love that kind of thing, you know, like character That's song, my favorite song on the Fictional storytelling. Yeah. I think. I used to be an angel Yeah, thank you. That I did have. It's probably the first song that got performed, also, because oh. I did it in a few. I don't know if you guys wouldn't know, but like um, Angel Dean and the Zephyrs and Amy Rigby when she was just, you know, actually it was before the Shams. So there were a few group shows that I stepped up and sang that song in, you know, and I remember feeling like, uh oh, here I am with like, you know, the people who really know how to do this and I'm going to try to do this mm-hmm. with this song. So so I wanted to talk about The Curse of Hook Mountain. Yes. Which I actually couldn't find lyrics online for some reason. So I, I, didn't, I couldn't refresh myself about all the lyrics, but where did that story come from? You know, it's funny. Robin Goldwasser and I were, she was working on some project that had like a kind of ghost story element to it. Mm. And we'd been comparing notes on, I don't know, some PBS series that was like a recurring, you know, kind of noir thing. Um, Had a family story that threaded through this like little mini series. And I just remember talking to her about this stuff. And then I, I don't know why I just decided to write the song that 
I think there is a Hook Mountain somewhere up <laughs> in Westchester, so I might have seen the name on the on a sign. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I don't know. It's just a goofy little thing. I tried to write something that sounded like an old spooky. It really does. <laughs> Yeah, I wondered if it was a real thing you had heard. No, it had the elements of something she had been working on that just inspired me to, which was a different thing. It wasn't for a song. It was for some kind of Mm. uh, playwriting project or something that um, where she was working out how this mystery would unfold. And we just had discussed it a few times and I ended up writing this song. So Mm -hmm. it was definitely very much, um, probably if I hadn't had those conversations with Robin, who, you know, we had a band together um, with another woman, Nancy Howell from the the band Flat Old World. You know, so we had, you know, things that we did uh, in that group that were covers of old folk songs. But then Robin was really, uh, I don't know if you remember the band The Jickets? I know the Hello EP. That's the only way I know them. So Robin had this whole thing with the Jickets and um, their cover of Rank Stranger and how spooky it sounded and how sometimes old country music could have this like, you know, especially stuff that had been field recorded or, you know, could have this like kind of murder ballad, you know, intensity to it, you know. And so it was from that that kind of... um, trying to conjure up some of that vibe. Um, I don't think I quite didn't write a murder ballad, but I (laughs) ended up with something a little sinister sounding. So, Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, you know, the Lee Harvey tune at the end is something that also I, you know, that's uh, us playing together with Flans and, Mm -hmm. um, Jeremy's on it and maybe even Amy Rigby is playing guitar or somebody, uh, because I was at a live radio show we did with um, Nick Hill from WFMU, yeah. who I w- worked with for a long time. Hello. Harp, the Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the last Sunday night music faucet for a while, at least. This is a weekly live music program that's this week moving to Wednesday nights at 8. And tonight, uh, because... Well, just because we felt like it, we decided to broadcast from the backyard. If you, I'm sure you can hear the dogs barking. <laughs> Again, that was like from our little, you know, community of music fan, radio people, arty kids, you know, mm-hmm. running around Williamsburg at the time. Nicholas Hill had this program, The Live Music Faucet, and he would often try to do it. It was a live program of live music, usually from the FMU studios every week, but he would often try to do remote broadcasts. Mm-hmm. And he just loved the idea of like a spontaneous happening where, you know, people would just show up and something would be broadcast and it didn't matter really, you know, if it was rehearsed and it was often mm-hmm. better if it wasn't. It was really kind of had this like sort of 60s ethos of like, just whatever it is, man. Mm-hmm. You know? So, Ladies and gentlemen, it looks like here on the back porch of this patio is a number of folk 
Robin Goldwasser, Laura Cantrell, David Hamburger, and John Flansburg are all holding instruments. And I believe a couple of them are going to sing. Is that true? Sure. How are we doing, Laura? We're doing pretty good, Nick. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. We got to ask for a finer who, afternoon. Who all is going to be here and here today with us? Because well, I can't quite recall. And we no, probably there's don't so even many really... folks playing, but amongst them, Jay Sherman Godfrey is going to play, uh -huh. and Amy McMahon Rigby, David Hamburger is going to do some songs, Lonesome Bob's going to do some songs, Tatel Koenig. Here comes Brian Dewan through the door right now. Brian Dewan, just in the, just in the nick of time. Hey, I'm okay. I'm happy, go lucky. Hey, why don't you just start us off, play us a tune. Okay. This is the Cantrell Goldwasser family singers. <laughs> Hyphenated. <laughs> It's been many weeks, my dear, since you told me how you love me so dearly and true. Well, that, that song, well, there's a lot of things I, I love about that song. I love how the sound of it. You know, because it, it, it sounds like everyone's at like a barbecue or something. Right, and it true. Mm. We truly were. We were yeah. barbecuing on his roof. Oh um, wow! Um, and mission accomplished. And playing music, you know, yeah. right there on Seventh and and uh, Roebling, I think. Mm, um, okay. In Williamsburg on a like fall, you know, Sunday mm -hmm. evening. So it's for those of uh, those of our listeners who are really into this conspiracy theories. I am, so we should just go ahead and start it, shouldn't we? I am one of those listeners. <laughs> so let me let me get the tempo here. So one, two, one, two, three, four. Lee Harvey was a friend of Yeah, so I'm really interested in sound production and sound design and for mm -hmm. film and stuff. And I, like, I would listen to a whole album that, that sounds like that because it's just, <laughs> it really uh, transports you, right. you know, rather than it sounding like a music studio. It sounds like a, right. sounds like a thing that happened in one time, right. you, you know? And it, it's funny, like I have a recording of me and my friend jamming uh, in his room and it was a thunderstorm outside and you hear the rain and you right. hear thunder and... And I've I keep I've always been like I wish I could just release that. <laughs> What's the origin of that song? It's like a cover, right? It's a cover. So the artist, um, this is a, a cover. I really learned it from, heard about it first through Nick Toshis, um, the music writer who passed away last year, mm. and um, Billy Miller and Miriam Lena of Norton Records. Um, when I was a student at Columbia, they came up to WKCR and did a show with Nick Toshis of weird old records. They were like, mm. they were like the really hardcore record collectors. And so Toshis had this artist, Homer Henderson from Texas, and it was a 45. And I just was taken with the whole thing. Like it was mm. a really cool sounding record. And here's the story that sounds quite plausible that someone <laughs> yeah. knew Lee yeah. Harvey and just couldn't believe that Mm -hmm. that, that he did that, you know, <laughs> and that would reason it through, like the way they talk themselves through the, you know, seeing the pictures of him and, mm -hmm. you know, like it just doesn't add up. 
I just love that song. We still play that song on tour oh, sometimes great. as like a, you know, encore tune just because it's so fun to mm-hmm. sing and it's such a kind of strange. Yeah, <laughs> strange I, it, there's a lot going on with that song. Right. It's just, and your vocal performance too is, it sounds so sincere and so it's it's sad because right. <laughs> it's really someone. It's there's also um there's this kind of painful nostalgic feel to the song right. it's about your childhood and right. being it's like lost innocence in a way right he threw a ball to me you know yeah. the whole uh, cuz it could almost be about anyone and it'd still be right. a sad sounding right. song it's but a then, betrayal yeah and then you <laughs> right. add the JFK conspiracy stuff on it and it's a strange mix it's actually it's very TMBG-ish in yeah. a way in a way it is you're right with yeah. their um you know their their you know, the kind of clash of like yeah. history and historical figures and what we know of them. and Yeah, especially you know. presidential stuff right. that comes up a lot <laughs> and, and murder and assassination. Right. <laughs> no, it's funny. You're reminding me, I did have one very funny little like uh, conversation once with John Flansburg where in his studio mm-hmm. and, and he was, we were talking about history and, and, uh, and how he was really shocked how people didn't know history far, you know, beyond when they were born or whatever. Mm. Like the, how basically how bad Americans are at history. Sure. And then it, <laughs> in in the course of our conversation, it came out that I didn't know who Nixon's vice president was. <laughs> Spiro and he, Agnew. Spiro Agnew. And he was so yeah. shocked. He was like, yeah, like. You don't know who, yeah, <laughs> and so he got funny. really like uptight about it, and and then he later apologized. He's like, "I'm sorry, that was so." And I was like, "No, no, I really just froze. I really couldn't couldn't come up with the, the name. Like all of yeah. a sudden, it was like the stakes were really high. And yeah. I lost Jeopardy. You know, that's so. so funny. I feel like most people only know that name though in a comedic context. Though, I know it because anyway. of Futurama. Did right. it, it, he was on as a robot or whatever on Futurama. Most of my knowledge is from cartoons I watched younger, uh, or they might be giant. Right. researching for the podcast sure. I've learned about so many weird things um, what was Flansburg like as a producer did he was he giving you notes was he looking for something specific you know I think well I also will say I I swear he'd been doing the hello sessions and I really wanted to do one but we'd had a hard time coordinating when mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure we were working on this like around like the, this interview <laughs> yes um, so it's obviously it's me yeah um, but no we were having trouble coordinating it, and I think it was like around the time John and Robin were getting married and mm. we were just like like rushing to get it done so that it would be, I'd be out of their hair, but I was really like not going to let it go. Cause I was, I sort of like, I'd seen, they put out these other ones and I was like, this is, you know, a way to, I, I didn't know how to, you know, go about like having a recording. Yeah. And so I was really like, you know, kind of, uh, dogged in trying to remind him that we were going to do this. And so there was a sense of like, let's be efficient with time. So it was like, 
we arranged everything pretty much on the spot. Like there was a spontaneity to it of just like, let's come up with what sounds good in the moment. Mm-hmm. And a couple of the players, especially John Grayboff, who played mandolin and some, I don't know if he played steel on it, but um, we're really good at coming up with parts like mm-hmm. kind of on the spot. Oh, okay. So we, we sort of leaned on, on Grayboff to um, come up with that. Were you... Uh, did you have any input? In, were, like, would you just accept what they did or do, would you give them like, oh, no, maybe play here differently or there, you know? I would give input for sure. But at this point in recording, I didn't have a lot of like... Clout? Preconceived. Yeah. Or just <laughs> yeah. like even thought that I I could tell the guitar player what to do. Yeah. You know? Um, now know I'm way mean. more direct about like, this mm. feel is wrong. Like, let's yeah. try this instead. But at that time, I was sort of like, you know if we got in the approximate zone of what I thought I had had in my head, mm-hmm. then we were going with it, you know? And so, you know, the, it was very much live. Like we just played that stuff live. There wasn't anything to overdub. You know, the band mm. was oh, really? oh, wow. all like, it's one, you know, it's either this take or this take or this take, whichever wow. one you think is the best because we're not stopping to, you know, <laughs> let anybody do anything over again. There was no separation. And wow. so there wasn't a, a really way to like isolate any one instrument. So huh. we got very lucky that the playing went well. Yeah. Um, I do remember some fretting over the vocals, which again, I was not very experienced. And, you know, there was like, should we sing, you know, with um, a click or whatever, you know, there were mm-hmm. s- some things that we tried and I was like, uh, I just was feeling my way and trying to figure it out. So I think John was probably had to be a bit patient <laughs> while I was like, hmm, I'm not sure if I'm going to get this or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and then of course, Robin, uh, you know, generously jumped in and sang too. Did and, she make up those harmonies? or oh, how yeah. did... It was all just like whatever she came up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, she, you know, came, went on to sing with me on my first record. Yeah. The, um, not the Trembling Kind record, and was in my first band mm. uh, with Jay Sherman Godfrey. The, the little kind of crew of folks who started out um, on this hello session, I did carry over into my mm-hmm. into my next band. Um, That's a good segue. We can talk about your first sure. album. did that happen that you started making your first album? Well, so after these songs were finished from the Hello record, I I guess I got more confident about writing. And Mm. so I, and I'd started doing Radio Thrift Shop on WFMU, which was a big part of my... Oh yeah, I want to talk about that. um, Well, I'll just say, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a big part of my musical development because I was going out to FMU every weekend and playing records and both getting to like really steep myself in a lot of old country music mm-hmm. and also to hear new things that were coming into the station that were country-ish. So, you know, new Lucinda Williams record, they had it. New Steve Earle record, they had it. New Tarnation or um, the Uncle Tupelo, like they had all that stuff coming through. Mm-hmm. As And then I was bringing my own kind of old 
LPs to the station. Well, hello there, folks. Welcome to the Radio Thrift Shop here on WFMU East Orange and WXHD Mount Hope. My name is Laura Cantrell, the proprietress of this radio establishment. Let me start telling you what we began our program with, Mr. Bunny Berrigan, the song Candle Lights. To ease us into our program today, we went from Mr. Berrigan to Count Basie. And there were a lot of great record collectors there, too. So it it felt like, again, another stage of like meeting this network of people who had shared similar interests, you know, Mm -hmm. um, with me. But there were more from this, you know, kind of collector and then community radio aspect of things. So, but that was... You know, uh, I think I got one on the air at FMU in 93. And then mm. um, this probably came out in 95 or 6, the Hello yeah. uh, stuff. And then by the time th- this came out, these songs were already like the ones I'd written three years ago. So I was already working on the next stuff that would become my um, my first record, which didn't come out till 2000, but was largely recorded in like, you know, late 98, early 99. You know, I also felt like I knew at that point I'd been around hanging around New York City clubs and heard a lot of other songwriters who I thought were really great um and many of them weren't country writers but I thought they had Mm -hmm. songs that I could adapt into kind of country style so that you know combination would was what I would use for my next um you know couple of records like uh, you know I'd try to write the strongest stuff that I could come up with and then have, you know, an Amy Rigby song or Amy Allison, Mm -hmm. George Usher, who wrote the song, Not the Trembling Kind, um, Dan Prater, uh, who wrote, Do You Ever Think of Me? These were all people I knew from the, Mm -hmm. you know, there's the the local kind of country club scene um, or the rootsy part of the like New York bar scene. I really like, well, I like all the songs, but um, yeah, Queen of the Coast is a big, kind of, it's kind of a big one on that album. Yeah, so for my first record, I think Queen of the Coast was my my most, um, the song I had the most sort of songwriter's pride about mm. finishing um, because it was a song about a person that I had knew was just a public figure, Bonnie Owens, the um, wife of Buck Owens and then Merle Haggard. And oh. she was someone I had observed in concert um, Though she divorced Merle Haggard, you know, 20 years ago, she still was singing in his band, singing mm-hmm. backup. And I wow. just thought that was like, must be weird, yeah. you know? <laughs> and she also seemed to sort of be the den mother of all the people on the Merle Haggard bus and mm-hmm. on the tour. So I just tried to kind of imagine what that would be like and write a song about it. So 
I will say that I was really proud of the song and a lot of people, including like, you know, when Elvis Costello said that he liked my music, he mm. pointed to that song. Oh, wow. John Peel loved that song. Um, you know, there were, there's, I've had like some really sweet praise for it. It, it um, feels like a classic. It just has that, it feels like it's like 50 years old in a way. Well, so I, again, like I felt like I sort of pulled it off, like, yeah, you know, that yeah. it doesn't seem like something that, you know, an, a kind of indie country person from the nineties mm-hmm. <laughs> wrote or whatever. Like I say, most, a lot, most of the songs, they have a timeless, or at least in the past century, right. <laughs> like feel like you're not, there's not lyrics that are about modern things in the world. You know, there's no lyrics about iPhones or (laughs) or even just in a subtle way. It's all very like classical kind of lyrics throughout all the albums about, you know, bars and shows and guitar and song. And you know, like it's, it's, it's this kind of, um, what would be the word like iconic or kind of, uh, archetypal country imagery, you know, that, that puts these songs in it. Like I can't, like when I listen to the albums, I can't tell which are covers and which are originals. Those churches off the interstate Cannot help the way I feel inside Voices on my radio Refuse to tell the best places to hide Coffee in my coffee cups Only good for taking me on a I guess some of that is by design, mm-hmm. um, you know, wanting it to sound like it harkened back to what I loved in older country music, but mm-hmm. that still had something about it that was could be you could relate to in a contemporary sense. Yeah. And so, you know, again, for the Queen of the Coast, like there's sort of a thread of like it's a feminist perspective of a woman observing a woman mm-hmm. and, um, you know, thinking about what her her experience was like, you know, 30 years before I got to observe her or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's interesting though. I sent that song at some point, some member of Bonnie's family, uh-huh. um, got in touch with me and had heard of the, that the song existed and wanted to hear it. And mm-hmm. so I sent it to them and they were just really adamant that Bonnie was not a sad character <laughs> and that she was yeah. the most positive person they ever knew. And, and I, I've, I've, always sort of tried to say like this is the story that I observed as I would tell it not mm-hmm. how she would tell her own story yeah, I couldn't sure. presume to tell Bonnie's story but anyway that happens a lot I just watched the movie Shirley about Shirley Jackson mm. and her, her apparently her son hated the movie being like this makes my mom look like a crazy <laughs> right. insane alcoholic abusive woman and she was nice she drove us to school she was like a good parent you know right. like that seems to happen a lot where people interpret someone else's right. vibe and it's right. like you can never be, you know, accurate. But it's it's sort of is about like, you know, there is a fictionalized version, you right. know, no matter what you do. Even if I'm telling Dave about something that happened to me last week, it's <laughs> it's in a way it's my own view of it. Yeah, <laughs> I make it all up. Right. You know, you control the narrative. So you yeah. Know. And I'm a, I, I'm I'm a big fan of a little bit of you. So that song actually was written by Jay Sherman Godfrey, and um, it is a, a lovely tune. And in fact, for my 20th anniversary, I have a um, we've been making. I have all this footage of us doing the song mm. when I was on tour in 2016, um, and I was going to put it out, uh, put out a little video of it, oh. um, just to have for our 20th anniversary. But I haven't done it yet. I have too much footage, so it's like. 
And of course, it's all like from my phone. So it's not yeah. like it's great yeah. <laughs> footage to look at, but I have just too much stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't whittled it down to get it put together, but it's always a very evocative song though. That's why I, I mm-hmm. love to cover it. Just when we were playing it live before we recorded, it was just a great, uh, you know, it has the, kind of those minor chords at the beginning yes. and it's like just sort of sets a tone that is a musical tone, but there's also an emotional quality to it, then they match. And so it's like... It's such a vulnerable right. song. I, I wanted yeah, to cover that with that my song. band, with the girl uh, singer. Yeah. Um, and she even practiced the part on the melodica, the... Right. But Which we never Robin. got around That was to... Robin Goldwasser. On oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. There's something really haunting about that recording. Yeah. Yeah. That version. That's like, that's probably my favorite on the album. But I also, I really want to talk about the last, the way it is, Mm -hmm. because that's just such a great, I'm really into the idea of like a sequence of an album and it's such a great final song. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have anything to talk about it. I just love the placement of it because it's, it's just got this kind of like, you just heard like 11 or 12 songs about sad heartbreak and (laughs) have, you know, being in love and all these things. And then it's just kind of ends with. And no lesson was learned. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah it's just that's how it is. It's funny because the album I'm working on this year has a similar. The last song is called "For What." It's, it's kind of like, "What was all that for?" Right. Like, like I don't even know. And it's I didn't even think that was an inspiration or anything. But I just I love that kind of thing of you know I wasn't writing a ton of songs, still not super confident about my writing, so I'd really sit on stuff for a long time. Mm. But that song, when it when I finished it, it felt like a complete whole thing that didn't seem like it needed to be rescued or or maybe sent away to the trash heap so (laughs) in terms of where it sits on the record that was my other kind of fun for me since I'd been a DJ was sequencing the whole thing and um, I really felt like there could be an arc and or, Mm -hmm. or there should at least be like some kind of relational flow between songs even if the flow was to change the energy uh, Mm -hmm. you know like so you might come out of something slow and go into something more upbeat but that there would be like this contour to it um Mm -hmm. and i've i try to do that on all my records i don't know how relevant that is now that people don't necessarily yeah i was gonna ask i know but we're stuck in the the past we we, i love the whole (laughs) idea of an album you know right you know kind of like a like a movie where there's a beginning and an end you know i'm i'm kind of obsessed with that idea right about the beauty of moment pass so quickly now the tingle and the chill got me confused so as i buckle down white knuckle a few rounds 
Those free moments feel so far and few. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. And I can't help myself at all. So we can kind of go through your albums then When the Roses Bloom Again. Right. So Um, we did that in 2002. mm -hmm. And it was, um, you know, I, I really just tried to, to, well, I should just say that we had a really great experience with um, Trembling Kind was, mm-hmm. you know, I made it in my house pretty much and in Jay's oh, wow. house. Um, so we were, you know, we we did like a day of tracking at one studio and then just did a lot of overdubs at, you know, between my apartment and his apartment and tried to, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, it was, so it was a sort of homemade in a sense. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, uh, it was, I knew we were going to release it as a proper record. And because I'd been a DJ, like not that many labels were interested in me, you know, in my music. I think everybody hmm. sort of thought of me, everybody in the alt country world was like, <laughs> oh, you do a show. Yeah. And, you know, being the singing DJ was not necessarily something that I was that interested in. Uh, and I could tell people were not that receptive to, you know, like, didn't, because they might like my show didn't necessarily make them like psyched to listen to music for me. But hmm. I got this weird experience of being able to release the record in, in the UK first where it got promoted and the whole BBC system is totally different. So, you know, it landed on some national programs and got on John Peel and Peel really vocally like mm. supported the album and played it weeks and weeks and weeks in a row. Wow. And it was on his Festive 50 and all this stuff that I never would have envisioned. I thought, hey, mm. I get a free trip to Scotland <laughs> out yeah. of this opportunity to put a record out on a label there. But um, it turned into like a little bit of a jump start um, to a real professional opportunity to, to actually release music and perform. And, Mm -hmm. um, so when we were starting roses, I knew that, that the songs had to be strong and that, you know, we wanted to have some of the intimacy of it being like carefully made, um, with care and, you know, attention to detail and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but that there would be this other, um, you know, kind of, expectation of it and we didn't have that when we were yeah. working on the first record so you know it was a little bit of pressure but still I felt like you know we came up with songs that I felt really strong about strongly about and then we just tried to play them the best we could do you so. have like a favorite that you wrote on the there's I, I can name some well so Mountain <laughs> Fern was my other song yeah. about a female artist um, and that started to become a little bit of a, a thing yeah I like um, that I like that it's something consistent on each album She left her home on the mountain as a young girl And she traveled and rambled all through the wide world And the world was Kentucky and then Tennessee West Virginia to Texas, everything in between And her name would be different there's early years. Oh, right. Early years yeah, what, was, my, was the answer song or was it, it was the song from, I tried, since I'd written the song from Bonnie Owen's point of view, mm-hmm. I decided to try to write one from Merle's, oh, wow. Merle Haggard's point of view. Now, <laughs> of course, realizing that's totally presumptuous thing to be like, 
Merle Haggard, one of the best songwriters ever. Mm-hmm. But I just was like, how would he tell the story of like, you know, of how this relationship waxed and waned and mm-hmm. what, what, you know, what would he maybe say about it? So, um, I don't know. It was that's, just, that's an, so it was just a, it was a, like making him a character and then writing from that perspective. Sort mm-hmm. of. Wow, that's I never would have guessed that. Yeah. <laughs> that's really interesting. Well, it comes because she says in an interview at some point that because she was married to Merle for like 10 years and then mm-hmm. um, he divorced her in a totally humiliating way whereby he fell in love with another woman, told Bonnie they were getting a divorce and then made Bonnie be a bridesmaid in the <laughs> wedding. Yikes. Yeah, it was just like a shit show. Oh, boy. But so later, later on after, you know, she still stayed involved in his life. She was, had helped raise his children and, you know, was, um, you know, they were very much enmeshed, but she, she says in an interview, well, you know, I got three good years with Merle, Mm. you know, Merle loved me for three years, you know, and then it started to change, you Mm. know, and I just always thought like, well, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Wow. So... I'm sad now. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah, the other, another highlight that you wrote on that one is Broken Again. That's, oh, a, right. that's a great. Do you think you, you tend to write from other people's perspectives more or a fictional perspective or some of these songs like based on personal? Well, I'd say that one might be more personal. Mm. Um, you know, I had had uh, some family members that had, had some illness and stuff mm. that was like, you know, tough to sort of work through. And, you know, you, where you just feel like, oh, okay, we've had an, as much bad news as we can handle yeah. kind of thing. But I, I tend to turn that stuff into, like, something, at least in this period, like, you know, it might sound like a bad breakup song or something, but mm. the emotion is really more like, I'm just flat. I can't. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I, I interpret it as a breakup song. Yeah, that, that's it's interesting. I like that. It's it's you know, I like songs that are not just a love songs right. or about breakup songs because it's not something you hear as often. Right. You know, like when the Beatles started to like stop writing love songs on like <laughs> right. their third or fourth album, it was like, whoa, what? what <laughs> you can doing? do songs about other things. Well, we can go to the third uh, humming by the flower vine. Yes. What was the reception from the second album? Then did you find that people seem to now you have, you know, you're proving yourself more, you know. That right. So we went, I will just, the thing I should just say is that mm-hmm. we, we had a really good experience also with, with the Roses record and got those great opportunities, went on tour with Elvis, you know, a lot more touring in the UK. 
with Humming, we got signed by Matador Records mm. and there was definitely an idea that like, okay, now we have, you know, a label. It's not really just self-released or on a little label in the mm -hmm. UK. It's like a real international label that can do all this stuff. And so, you know, there was an expectation on my part that like there would be, that that support would translate into things that we hadn't been able to, to achieve commercially. Mm -hmm. And on... Matador's part, they were like, okay, now you have to make the record like that sounds still sounds cool, but like also is, you know, it's almost like st keep doing what you're doing, but, but more. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. And so there was a lot of pressure and, um, you know, I had to work with a budget. We recorded at Brooklyn recording was a beautiful, um, and mostly great experience, but I just really was tortured about the songs and about, oh, wow. you know, the, you know, it felt to, to me like, you know, we wanted to make it the best in all possible ways. And that at some points that that was a little bit like it ended up with me feeling kind of defeatist about like, I hate this song or <laughs> I don't know about this arrangement or mm -hmm. we did, we added some different musicians and all of a sudden it wasn't just like guys I played with live. You know, there were mm. a few more, you know, it was a different, different drummer on some of the tracks. It was the first record Steve Goulding played on with me the, um, from Graham Parker's band and also Me the Mekon. So I loved playing with um, Steve. Uh, but the pressure was certainly on. So We'll put in a, a exciting music at this part, like, dun-dun. Yes. <laughs> <You know. laughs> However, there's some songs on it I'm really proud of. Yeah, I really love Bees, Bees? which the, the title of the album comes right. from. And I'll just, I'll, I'll say Bees is about a character that I had met um, through doing Radio Thrift Shop. He's an older um, performer named Zeke Manners. Mm. And he was an old DJ who was um, active in the 30s <laughs> in, uh, uh, on the radio in LA and then eventually in New York. And if you look up Zeke Manners, you can find, he, he was a recording artist. He made... Um, Hillbilly Records. He was also like a very close friend of Les Paul oh, and wow. Henny Youngman. And mm. he was sort of like a Zelig character of like entertainers from the era of the 40s and 50s. Met a Texas gal in California. And the day I found her was my lucky day. When I heard that Texas drawl, brother, you could see me fall for a Texas gal in California. Anyway, I had played a radio show that he'd been on. Uh, I'm sorry, I'll just say he was an original Beverly Hillbilly. And the <laughs> Beverly Hillbillies, the concept yeah. was his idea in the 30s, and it was a radio show. Oh, And so in okay. the 60s, when they put it on TV, mm -hmm. somebody, you know, a TV producer was like, Zeke, can we use your idea from the wow. 30s? And he thought, that's never going to work. Sure. Wow. And then later had to sue them sure. to like... So it's a it's a great cool story, but he was such a sweet. He, he was almost like our little like fairy grandfather kind of character. Like, mm -hmm. how does know, that relate to the the lyrics and bees? I'm, well, I'm so now. it's really so. His <laughs> wife's name was Bee, and he, oh, all, okay. he often would talk about how he missed Bee, and he you know. I, so oh I God. made this friendship with this guy. He was like in his eighties, and most of his friends were either of ill health or not around anymore. And then you know he was this totally vibrant, vital guy and yet he would he'd spend a lot of time like just experiencing like remembering people he'd lost and yeah. mm. so i just felt like 
um, anyway, he passed away, and then I, I sort of wrote the song kind of remembering what it was like to talk to him, and it was like he had all these, like, swashbuckling tales of, like, <laughs> what they used to do, and, you know, I wrote a song with so-and-so in 1942 in the Edison Hotel and blah, 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 you know, like, it was all these great tales. Mm-hmm. But then at the, you know, after you'd, like, celebrate and enjoy all this stuff with him, he'd still be like, I miss B. You yeah. Know? Like, I miss wow. my wife. You know, she was so much fun. Oh, you that's know? so interesting. It's so d- mm-hmm. different from what I thought about the song. That's so right. interesting. I thought it was about bees. Yeah, I thought it was about <laughs> bees, too. See the sign of the old hotel We used to stay there Empty and threadbare Water running cold Search the streets for old friends Met only strangers None who remember None who would take me home I miss the bees I miss the So, if so should we, we should wrap up. We could just wrap up. We didn't <laughs> talk we about probably... your, your last album, though. Um, but yeah. Well, I will just say, like, you know, my last record was this one called uh, No Way There From Here. Yes. And I guess what I've just been enjoying and I'm still trying to, to do, even now that I'm working on new music, is, mm-hmm. like, I en- enjoyed most, for me, like, the sort of continuing experience of writing songs and yes you know i i probably try to be more spontaneous and have fewer rules and yet mm. at the same time try to have a mind of about craft like i feel like i've just got more experience with what like what some makes a sturdy part of mm-hmm. this song so what are you working on now like what what's going on well in the present? I, I have a 20th anniversary project which is mm-hmm. just um i did a a lot of co-writing over the last few years. And so we're doing a a digital singles project that we're just starting. Um, In fact, the next, nothing's going to be released like to the public um, until later next year, but it's a crowdfunding thing. So we've got it like, we're releasing the songs first to the people who funded it. You want to tell people where to, where to go. Well, it's, the the crowdfunding was at Indiegogo and we've already funded okay. it. Although oh, okay. you can still you can still go and sign up to be sure. you know uh, you know to get them. But um, you know it's all songs that I've written in the last couple of years with different oh. co-writers and you know it's still it's still fun to try to figure out like what makes a good song. You yeah. know, what is my perspective at this point in my life? What have I got to say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know that's still a um, a fun thing to do. So. Awesome. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're welcome. For your time and your stories. <laughs> yes. Okay. Fantastic. Everyone, check out Laura Cantrell and her music. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, fellas. There it is, folks. There there it is. Love there it, it was. Lo- love it or lump it. Um, there it went. Thank you so much, Laura Cantrell. Thank you, Laura Cantrell. And thank you, Dave, for keeping me company in the car ride over. To yeah, no problem. Interview Laura. My pleasure. If you want to know more about her stuff, she's got all these great solo albums. And, and I'm going to tweet out on our at Don't Let's Pod is our Twitter. I'm going to tweet all these links to her stuff. 
and and you some better. cool, maybe some rare fun stuff I found. Our email is yes. d- don't let's start podcast at gmail.com. Why don't you email us? Why don't Jesus, you email your old grandmother <laughs> once in a while and and pick up the phone and tell us what you thought of this uh, of this interview. What do you have a favorite Laura Cantrell song? Maybe I'll forward it to her. I don't know. It might make her day. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'll go into her spam folder. You never know. And uh, please uh, enjoy the show. And and will <laughs> anything you want to say, Dave? You seem like you've got something on your mind. <laughs> Uh, you can support us at Anchor. <laughs> you can support us at anchor.fm slash don't let start. That's the first time I didn't have to look it up. Nice. Because my brain doesn't memorize things very well. And you can follow us on uh, Twitter. Don't let's pod. We're going we're gonna to tweet all day and all night. Take care of yourselves, everybody. It's a rough one out there. So please be safe and enjoy music. He stuck a gun into his ribs and said, here's looking at Robin Goldwasser, David Hamburger on Dobro, John Flansburg on 12-string guitar, Jay Sherman Godfrey on a six-string guitar, and Jeremy Tepper on a harmonica. You're sitting down. Just look over your shoulder. Hey, Laura. Yes, Nick. Who's coming up next?